Hey everybody, Sam Mellinger here, sports columnist with the Kansas City Star. Thank you so much for listening to episode 21 of this experiment we're calling Mellinger Minutes for Your Ears. Before we get started today, I want to shout out two specific groups of you. Uh, first, everyone who's been with us from the beginning, thank you. Your feedback has been helpful. Please keep it coming. This is a two-way conversation. Also, thanks to everyone who's new this week, encouraged by the much better accessibility of bringing this thing from behind the paywall and out into the open, uh, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever else you get your podcasts. I know the old way made it too hard on you, and I hope now we can reach a bigger audience. Okay, uh, we always try to be worth your time, and I think we'll do it again this week. There's a ton going on nationally and locally, and we'll have questions about the future of college sports, a potential union, how the Royals' new TV deal will change the direction, long-term of the franchise, and how long much of college sports will be on hold. As always, some video you won't get anywhere else. This time, it's Chief General Manager Brett Veach helping explain in his words how the heck he and cap specialist Brant Tillis have been able to keep signing stars with a salary cap that's going to shrink next year. Okay, before we start, I do want to make one ask of you. I hope you read this column that's up on KansasCity.com right now. You can find it on my Twitter and Facebook pages too. It's about the protests and strikes going on in sports right now. It's an important point in there that I hope can really resonate. Please, please, please check it out. Okay, so you may not have even realized this, but officially Chiefs training camp ended this week. The last training camp practice was Wednesday. Of course, like everything else in the world, the Chiefs' preseason practice schedule has been flipped upside down a few times, but essentially this is the part where the team would stop practicing in St. Joe and start back at the facility. Uh, In basic terms, this is sort of the end of the preseason and the beginning of true game prep, but the Chiefs-Texans season opener two weeks from yesterday. Uh, It's a good time then to share with you some insights from camp. There are only four of us allowed to watch all of practice, so I owe it to you to share what I saw. You know, a lot of you are going to want to know how individual players looked. I guess (laughs) this isn't a surprise, but uh, Patrick Mahomes did something I'm dang near every day that made you wish you had access to replay. You know what I mean? I mean, these are all practices and experimentation is encouraged. So I'm not saying how big a part of the real games any of this will be. But you guys, he threw one touchdown with a sort of like forward pitch. You know, so think of the motion like on an RPO when the quarterback keeps it, but then decides to pitch to the pitch wide to the running back. It was like that, except he's sort of pitching it forward and it went over a defender's head for a touchdown. It was crazy. There was another time he took like the snap from under center and then maybe one or two quick step back. And I know this is going to sound made up, but he like whipped the ball underhand, like submarine style, Dan Quisenberry or something. It was Oddly practical, too, honestly, because, you know, the lower arm angle shot the ball underneath the arms of the pass rushers. I just, I've never seen anything like that before. The other thing that stood out from him, he did a lot of downfield passing after breaking the pocket to his left, right? So, like, you know, right-handed quarterbacks are always more dangerous scrambling to their right. And I've always thought that's when Mahomes is at his most dangerous. But he's found this way. It's it's. I think it looks improved even from last year. He's found this way to like sort of whip his body back toward the middle of the field when he's going left. And it's really given him enough, you know, to get some real zip on the passes. That can create a lot of problems for the defense because now, you know, that conventional approach of forcing the quarterback out of the pocket to the weak side, that's less effective. And even when that happens, those linebackers and defensive backs can't know what's coming. So, okay, sure, it's probably not noteworthy that Mahomes looks good, right? But um, here's some others. Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, you guys, uh, he's going to be a star. Um, (laughs) My good, it, it is easy to see what the Chiefs loved about him. He catches everything out of the backfield. And, you know, the balance and sort of power is is what was talked about a lot as well as his versatility when he was drafted but his horizontal cuts are absurd he's gonna have some highlight runs 
Uh, Willie Gay Jr., he has progressed really nicely. You could tell they were giving him a little bit more and more as the practices went on, you know, slowly moving up the depth chart. He's obviously fast, and they need that in coverage, but he also looks to be like a willing hitter between the tackles. Uh, Legereus Sneed is another guy we should mention. Uh, he's raw. Um, there's a lot he still needs to absorb, but again, sort of like with Gay Jr., you, you, you can see by how they're using him. Uh, in the team drills that they believe there's a really good player there. And I wouldn't be surprised if he contributes sooner than later. Uh, Nick Kaiser is another one who stood out in a good way. You know, you heard a lot of Jody Fortson hype, and he may have had the best camp of anyone, to be honest. But um, that is a really hard depth chart to climb. You know what I mean? The Chiefs are ridiculously deep at receiver. Demarcus Robinson has a look, for instance. And, you know, it seems like McCole Hardman is ready to make a step, too. So anyway, on the other side, I'm not sure where the place for Breland Speaks is, to be honest with you. The Chiefs were hopeful he'd have an impact this season after that injury last year. And, and maybe he will. But he didn't show a lot during the practices we saw. Um, Sammy Watkins is in another similar spot. He had one great day of practice, but the rest of the time didn't really show out that much. Um, you know, to be fair, he did miss some snaps with an injury too. But um, in a broader way, the biggest thing that stuck out was just how these practices are run. And you know, this isn't really new. Uh, it's not different than what we've seen in St. Joe, for instance, but you know, being so much closer to these practices this summer, it just made the point pop about how Andy Reid runs those practices. Like, you know, you can tell that every minute is planned, every minute has a purpose. Uh, there's a lot of energy, uh, both from the players and the coaches. And you know, Reid has this way about him, too. Um, you know, a lot of good leaders are like this, like, he sees everything but doesn't say a lot, at least in the moment on the field. And, you know, that has a lot of effects. That means that, that when he does say something, it can change a man's day, right? Uh, good or bad. And he also, you know, there's this old term and, and he does it. He spends a lot of time coaching the coaches. You know, this was always Bill Snyder style, for instance. Um, so it's like, you know, if there's a point that Reed really wants made during a practice, he is, he's much more likely to say it to an assistant than to the player directly. The assistants are empowered this way. And it also means that Reed's words have even more of an impact. You know, you, you can see why so many of his assistants get jobs in other places and why they've been successful. So, you know, look, um, none of this means the Chiefs are going to repeat, obviously. Um, there's also the obvious point to make about training camp practices being hard to evaluate and, and kind of irresponsible to put too much into. You know, like every time a guy on one side wins a snap, right, it means that the, the guy on the other side lost and they're both on the same team. So... But anyway, it was cool to watch football again and to see it so closely. Uh, it's hard to believe it's less than two weeks until the opener. Can't wait. Okay, uh, quick break here, and then we'll come back to answer some questions. If you'd like to participate in next week's show, and I would love for you to do that, uh, please call 816-234-4365. Leave your first name, where you're calling from, and almost literally any question. Please put the number in your phone. Call anytime, 816 816- Two three four four three six five. Okay, quick break, and we'll be back with those questions. Sam, this is Andy from Vegas, longtime reader, first-time caller. Uh, call us in a question for the po- uh, the podcast. If college players across football and basketball and possibly every NCAA athlete could unionize, how do you see that transforming the college impact or the college model in both positive and negative ways? 
Thanks, Sam. Andy, uh, thank you, and I appreciate you. Uh, there is an irony in college sports here with the fact that if the NCAA had updated its rules to reflect the reality that we've all known has existed for decades, uh, then we probably would not have so many college football teams canceling or postponing their seasons. I know that sounds weird, but it's true. The, the refusal to officially recognize that athletes aren't just like other students, it means that they can't be bubbled, for instance. It means uh, they can't be given certain protections that would be unavailable to the average, you know, like comms major or whatever. You know, that policy is great for keeping the profits when times are good, right? But it's less great for keeping the games going when a pandemic hits. And, you know, look, there's another set of truths here that we should all recognize. Um, the push for college athletes to be paid has gone hyperbolic levels, right? It's turned people crazy to the point that many refuse to acknowledge the value that's already given to college athletes. And I'm not just talking about the scholarship. Um, there are real and tangibly valuable connections made when you play sports for a university. You have access to tutors, nutrition, you have access to experts in whatever field you're interested in that is more easily open for you if you're an athlete. That's real power in that. I, I should say, at least for now, um, you know, I'm not smart enough to see how a true like college athlete union is feasible without some huge disruption that I'm not sure college athletes with, you know, these guys have a very short window for competition uh, and exposure. And I just don't know how much those men and women are going to be willing to ride that disruption out to create a union that, let's be honest, they're probably not going to benefit as much from. So, um, but look, if we can just like snap our fingers and imagine a union, I think the biggest thing might be medical care. Um, you know, this would probably be focused heavy on football for, I suppose, obvious reasons. But, you know, healthcare would be the issue that college athletes could generate the most public support for. They get treatment for their sports injuries, you know, kind of short term. But there are a lot of stories about athletes being mistreated, you know, kind of long term. And, you know, certain universities saying, you know, that wasn't a sports injury. That's not covered. Things like that. People tend to automatically go to, you know, athletes being paid when there's talk of a union. But that's missing the point. And, you know, besides, I think like the name, Im image and likeness Stuff, you know, that's changing over. I'm not sure how much we need to even be talking about like salaries for college athletes or whatever. So, you know, but there, there's a lot of spots here, you know, where college, college athletes could benefit from using, you know, their collective power. And healthcare is the most obvious, um, but there's also some things with education, uh, with athletes often being pushed to certain majors to maintain eligibility, transfer rights, for instance more voice when, you know, a college coach goes too far with practice time or punishments or, you know, instances of potential abuse. I actually think, and, you know, this might be naive, but whatever, but I think a lot of these issues would have mutual support between athletes and schools. Uh, it's easy to forget, you know, these programs, they are in the literal business of attracting the best athletes and they don't want to be seen in the way of progress. So anyway, um, that's how I'd see it going. Um, okay, here's a Royals question. Hey, Sam, Matt from Leewood. Wanted to leave you a message for Mellinger Minutes for the Ears. This question pertains to the Royals' television contract. Wanted to know if negotiations have stalled due to the pandemic. Um, and given the local ratings, at least as far as I've read, they've been pretty good. The Royals have more leverage at this point. And perhaps in the context of the likely labor strife over the course of the next 12 months, is near-term leverage held by the Royals lost? What are your thoughts on this? I want to hear more. Thanks. Bye-bye. 
So I should say here at the top, Matt called in before it was announced that the deal is finalized this week. But I do think this is we're talking about, you know, in another season, um, you know, this might have been the biggest story in Kansas City of the week. You know, um, look, a local television contract, that is a five or 10 year decision for a baseball team. And, you know, with how revenue sharing is structured, these deals, they have an outsized impact in how baseball teams operate with the payroll. The Royals last contract, uh, they signed that around 2006. That quickly turned into one of the worst in sports. It made the task of building a winner even more difficult for Dayton Moore's and his assistants. My understanding is that the new deal is a significant raise, uh, more than twice the old take. But, you know, let's be real. The Royals aren't, you know, now peers with the Yankees or Dodgers or Cubs or anything. They're just, you know, a little closer to the bottom five or so. This gets into ownership, too. David Glass, he dipped into the red more often than a lot of fans are willing to believe. And he also had a hard line that he would not cross. The example I always bring up is that even in 2015, with the team they'd spent nearly a decade building toward had finally materialized, Glass demanded that any deadline deals be salary neutral. Um, after the 2016 season, when the team was at a crossroads and should have either, you know, you got to inject the big league roster with some free agent talent or trade the valuable pieces while they still can bring back a return, Glass instead made what I still believe was one of his worst decisions. He told the front office to build for the future, but to also win now and to do it without extra money. You know, basically, I want everything, you know. In other words, you know, he's given the choice here, right, between, you know, trying to win now or build for a more stable future. And he wanted both, which guaranteed that he would get neither. This isn't hindsight. We wrote about this and talked about it often in real time. You know, okay, so what's it have to do with right now? Well, John Sherman, the new owner, has articulated a different vision. He wants to avoid those cycles. And he has strongly implied, and no promises made, it should be noted, but he's expressed the desire and willingness that there will be money from ownership to help cover some holes when the time is right. And that's where we come to this TV contract. It's going to make that easier for Sherman than it was for Glass, because the TV deal that Sherman just signed will be better than the one that Glass did. At least it better be, right? Okay. Uh, all right. As long as we're talking about the future, here's here's another interesting question. Hey, Sam. I don't know if this is in time for the podcast or not. Uh, this is Dane calling from Casey Mo, And uh, I bought a pair of tickets for the 2021 Final Four, an application for those tickets this week, past week. Just wondering if you think it was an irrationally optimistic purchase. Thanks. I don't, actually. I know my default is optimistic, and I also sense that I'm a bit more open about games with fans than a lot of you, um, but that's how I feel. I mean, you know, maybe we should couch this a little bit, right? If you're expecting to go to the Final Four and for it exactly to be like the Final Four in 2019, you know, with a packed stadium and no empty seats, all that, then yeah, that's probably a bit much to ask. But America's moving forward. Um, right or wrong, uh, we are creeping back towards something that, you know, sort of, kind of, maybe just a little bit resembles normal. We're having games with fans now. And at least in a lot of places, kids are going back to school. Um, you know, look, I understand the difference between outdoors and indoors, right? The Chiefs playing at Arrowhead versus, you know, a basketball game in a, you know, sort of dome stadium. But there's a clear market for tickets and there's a clear willingness from public health officials to let this happen with certain protocols. Now, look, um, you say you got tickets in the lottery. I don't know the specifics of that, obviously. You know, the Final Four, it's scheduled at Indianapolis this year. Lucas Oil Stadium, I think they can seat about 70,000 people there for basketball. So if they're selling 70,000 tickets right now, then yeah, I'm not going to expect all of those tickets to be valid. But, you know, they could be. 
right? Um, I don't want to totally dismiss that, but there would obviously need to be a lot of progress with a vaccine and other measures between then and now. But anyway, I feel like we're too far into the weeds on this. Um, you know, you're essentially asking if college basketball will happen. And I believe it will. Um, college football is happening, even in a limited way. And basketball has more time and just a much more manageable, you know, team size to deal with. So I think it happened. But I say that, and if I were you, I'd also want to know what the refund policy is, if you know what I mean. So, okay, cool. Uh, good questions this week. Please keep them coming. The number one more time, 816-234-4365. Call anytime, 816-234-4365. The more questions, the better the show. Um, quick break, and we'll be back with Chiefs General Manager, Brett Veach, who will explain how he does the magic that he does. Okay, so one of the great mysteries of following the Kansas City Chiefs for the last 10 years or so is how the team could be in such cap hell when they had Dwayne Bowe and an old Tom Bahali and Jeremy Macklin and then be okay with long-term extensions for Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Travis Kelsey, Chris Jones, uh, big free agent deals for Tyron Matthew and Frank Clark. It just it patently does not make sense on the surface. And look, like I get it. It's fun to say the cap is fake or that Brett Veach is a wizard. But there are still actual rules to follow, so I thought it would help everyone out to get the answer from the source. Um, the audio here just straight up is a little bit tinny, um, so apologies for that in advance, but the information is good enough that I wanted to get this through. So anyway, uh, the first question here uh, to Veach was basically, you know, can you help me understand how you guys are paying all these stars and keep them into the future when the cap is going to go down? That's a good question. When the offseason certainly you, you expect an inflation on the cap of five or ten million so you know last year it was 198.2 and, and you're kind of projecting 205 or 210 and then as we navigate through the spring and summer we actually went into the offseason thinking we can do Pat Mahomes and Chris Jones and, and cap wise we don't have to do one then the other we can just do them and, and, and make it work as we start to get information that the season could be compromised the attendance could be compromised the cap could be compromised. Then we had a pullback, and that's why there was a lot of dialogue where the Chiefs and Chris Jones aren't talking. Well, I mean, we just told the agent, like, we can't talk. We have no idea what this is going to look like right now. We can't structure deals. Um, typically, you start to catch wind. So when that 175 number became um, a number that was talked about on the Internet, we, you know, there was certainly a, a little leading time that we had to that. And, and we, we worked different uh, – you know, we work different models of, okay, if the cap is, is flat at 198, if it's at 190, if it's 185, if it's at 170. So we basically knew the levels that at a certain point we couldn't do, Chris. Um, but certainly being at 175, that was an area that was doable. 
I'm going to paraphrase Veach a little bit here just in the interest of time, but he mentions at sites like Over the Cap and Spotrack that monitor salaries and cap space. They're just, they're not always accurate. Um, You know, so many NFL contracts include these incentives. It could be, you know, classified for cap purposes in so many different ways. But okay, so this next clip that we're going to play uh, is where the real answer comes. And I'm just going to set Brett up here a little bit, give give his next answer some, some context. You know, most NFL contracts are structured in a way that prioritizes signing bonus. When guys get to the point of that second contract, that third contract, they almost always want the highest signing bonus possible, and they want as much of the money as they can get guaranteed in the first three years. That gives them security, and it lessens the ability of the team to cut the player and move on. Uh, The Chiefs, differently, they were able to structure their biggest deals in a more team-friendly way. Like Mahomes, I don't know. I don't think this was talked about enough, but Mahomes got virtually no new money in his first two years, for instance. Um, Same with Travis Kelsey. Chris Jones's new deal, that's heavy on roster bonuses that can potentially be converted into signing bonuses to create some more immediate cap space if the team needs it. Uh, That is a fundamental difference that lets the cap hits be spread in a way that's more advantageous for the team when it comes to keeping everyone around. Okay, so anyway, here's Brett explaining it. We certainly play for all those games, and then when you get the contracts of, of Pat and, and Chris, the way they're structured with roster bonuses that can be either absorbed, depending on what you do with the roster, or if you need space, they can be transferred into a signing bonus and then prorated out to, to thin the number for a year. Um, so there's always conversions that you can do. Now, you typically don't love doing conversions year in, year out, because you're just kicking it down the, down the road. However... It is a unique time, and when you look at a reduction in cap, and then uh, I, I don't know exactly what two years from now is, if it's another reduction or if it's going to be back up to a, a, a more of a flatter number like it was last year, 190 or 200. But, I mean, listen, I, I think we always operate with the mindset there's going to be TV deals too coming up. And so it's basically let's navigate the next couple of years and have some flexibility in these big contracts. And if we can make it work and absorb their numbers for that year, we do that. But we know that, given the way they're structured, we can we can prorate them out. Them out. Now again, it, it's not a, a habit you'd love doing year in and year out. But you also know that there's nothing normal about what's going on in, in the world right now, and you have to give yourself a little flexibility um, and know that if you can survive the next few years, once you get to the you know two years from now, three years from now. Um, hopefully everyone is safe and happy and everyone's enjoying games at Arrowhead Stadium and places back, but also uh, I think you know that'll be reflective in, in the cap and in the status of the business and, and you're banking a little bit on, on the health and the growth of the economy and the cap down the line too. So now if we have used to prolong and vaccines aren't effective and this, this spirals into another year, the whole league is going to be in the same position. There's a point that it just has to be emphasized here. You know, like all teams talk about being a family, right? And of players wanting to be part of something bigger, uh, willing to sacrifice themselves for the greater good. Um, You know, the best teams, they can even point to some examples that they can believe prove that point. But I'm just not sure how many can point to so many stars. These are the best players, the ones with the most leverage. And I don't know how many teams can point to so many of those guys willing to sacrifice on the contracts like this to make it all work. That is as real an example as a team can present. It's like a roster full of like, you know, Tom Brady's taking middle of the road money for his position. 
Um, you know, here's another truth. The cap situation is going to change. Nobody wants to think about this now, but some of these deals won't work out for the team. You know, with the exception of Mahomes, they all carry varying levels and types of risk. But, you know, they also carry varying levels or forms, I should say, of escape for the team. And it is up to Veach and his scouts to continue to draft well so they have cheaper options coming through. You can't pay everybody big money. So in other words, it's sort of like the Chiefs. They found a way to be stuck with the cap. They don't have a lot of space right now, right? But one, they did it for the right reasons, which is to maintain a group of stars who enjoy playing with each other. And two, they did it in the right ways, which is with structures that allow the short-term cap to work and the long-term cap to at least have a chance. It's, you know, it's a pretty remarkable thing and it requires uh, self-discipline and efficiency from the front office. And it also requires this like sort of general work environment for the players that they're willing to de-emphasize certain financial considerations to remain a part of it. That doesn't happen a lot, right? Um, if you're a Chiefs fan for any length of time, you know that doesn't happen a lot. So uh, that should not be taken for granted now. And you know, along with what we talked about at the top here, with how Reed runs the football side, this is a huge reason why the Chiefs, you know, why they not just won the Super Bowl, but are now so well positioned to have a chance at another. Okay, you guys, that's the show this week. Thanks to Randy Mason and Savannah Smith for putting it together. And thanks to everyone who called in. Thanks to Brett Veach for the insight. And especially a big thanks to you for listening, whether you've been with us the whole time or just found us with the better delivery. Either way, I hope we're worth the time and we'll try to do it again next week. Be safe, be kind. <laughs>